Hi listeners, it's Lucy. Please don't scroll ahead. This is a very quick message, I promise, to ask a very easy favour. At the end of each episode, as the credits roll, you'll hear a request from us to rate and review the show. Now, for those of you that are awesome podcast listeners rather than podcast makers, you might actually have no idea what a huge difference those things make. A significant factor in the visibility of a podcast on almost all listening platforms is down to the number and quality of ratings and subscriptions. So, if you are one of our dedicated listeners, hi, I know some of you as far away as Australia, so thanks. If you're currently not driving your car or changing a baby's nappy, can you please just look down at your phone right now as I'm talking and hit subscribe and five-star rating? Both of them are on the homepage of the show and they are both only a one-click job. But oh my God, what a lot of joy and gratitude I would feel at those one clicks. It makes such a difference to the show's potential to keep going. Now, enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. You're about to hear a brief conversation with an incredible artist. Part autobiographical journey, part literary analysis, and part late-night chat in the theatre bar. This is Hear Me Out. And I'm your host, Lucy Eaton. Please welcome to the stage, Toby Stevens. I see you have a pen in your pocket, Toby. Are you just, like, ready to I take know, notes? My, that is like the bookshelf in the background of your thing. It's a total pose. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually surrounded by boxes because we've been... We've been um, we just had our house refurbished. I'm literally in this box room, which is upstairs. Brilliant. But anyway, I mean, eventually it'll, it'll yeah, be cleared out and it'll be a place for me to go and write with my pen. <laughs> Get that pen out and do some writing. Doodle with my pen. Oh, yeah. I am such a serial doodler when I'm on phone conversations. I mean, I wouldn't do it on this type of conversation because I can see your face and you can see mine and it would be very rude if I was like, you know. But on the phone, I am I do lots of squiggles and flowers and I'm like a little teenage girl, like lots of hearts, stars. <laughs> I just can't stop. I'm sure that that says something about my psyche. Uh. Okay, so come on. We must now be very serious mm-hmm. and tell me what speeches that you have picked as your favourite speech, Toby? So um, my speech that I've chosen is uh, from Macbeth and it's the one, it's a very famous speech, but it's the one where he sees the, the dagger. I saw Macbeth, it was one of the first Shakespeare plays I saw as a child. Um, I must have been about five or six when I first saw it. I think about six. It's a good one for kids. Yeah, and I completely, I was entranced by it. It's such a brilliant play. It's it's very pithy. It's not a very long play. No. Um, and it packs such a punch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I and you know I think that this speech sort of sums up everything that I love about the play because it's right at the heart of the play it's just before Macbeth kills Duncan and it's this moment of silence this pause while he's waiting for the bell to toll which is his signal to go and do it and he sees this this dagger and you know the question is the questions that are asked in it is you know is it some apparition uh, is it part of the witch's mystic, this whole mystic side to the play? Mm. Or is it his conscience? Is it a manifestation of his conscience? And Shakespeare is deliberately ambiguous about this, I think, throughout the whole play. I'd never thought of that before, what you just said, in terms of 
there's two versions of not a real dagger that it could be. Like in my mind, I was like, well, we know it's not a real dagger. But you're right. There's like, is it a real hallucination, as in something created by the magic, created by the witches? Or is it a completely unreal hallucination, as in something of his mind? Yeah, and I, I sort of... My my thing is, I, I think that Shakespeare is deliberately ambiguous about it. And mm. it's kind of both. He straddles both horses. Because there is a feeling that the play is couched in this world which is pagan. That There's very little um, Christian narrative or symbolism in the play. I mean, he, he doesn't really... It's, it's very much a kind of pagan world. And, uh, you know, the, the witches are these, like, fates-like, uh, fate-like characters from, from Greek myth. Yes. And they, they're very much based on that. And so this sense of that there is this kind of predestined thing, that, that, that his fate has already been predetermined. So yeah. whether he has free will or not, you know, does Macbeth have free will? And it seems that he doesn't because he's drawn along this path that has already been created for him. But at the same time, he still does have consciousness and he does have a conscience. And that is, the, to me, is the tragic nature of every tragedy has, and, and every tragic character has to have a tragic flaw. And his tragic flaw is the fact that he does not, he, he is not necessarily in control of what is going on. I like that. Yes, his tragic flaw is out of himself. Yes. And at the same time, he is aware of what he is doing. Yes. So he's caught in this terrible situation where he is drawn along this inevitable path. But at the same time, he is, his conscience is, is engaged He's go, he knows what the consequences are. Yes, he's sort of full of regret as he's doing it. Yes. It's really funny when you say about it being really ambiguous, because certainly with Shakespeare, we do get used to thinking like, oh, there's an answer for that. Like, I can translate this and then I will understand it. And there is something really exciting about there being a character where it's like, no, no, no amount of translation can solve this. Yeah. You make up your own mind. I think that's where theatre and poetry are so much more p- profound than something that's very literal. It engages a part of the mind or confuses the mind in a way that actually opens up more possibilities. Mm. If you deliberately make it ambiguous, if it's poetic ambiguity, it, it elicits an audience to ask themselves, ask all these questions and opens up the situation to interpretation. And I, I think that that's much more interesting. And I think it's, it is a very deliberate thing that, that Shakespeare does with it. Yes, I get very frustrated in the theatre when I am told stuff too much, when I'm treated like I'm stupid. You know, there's an element of, like, I want to work. Well, it suddenly makes it so boring, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah it's, so, it's sort of prosaic. You know, you go, oh, right, OK. And some, when something is theatrical, when it's theatrical, it, it is so different from, like, reading a book, watching mm. a TV series, watching a movie reading a newspaper article. It is something that... It is a world that is created that allows the imagination to engage and allows us to ask... These questions that are asked are things that we have to ask of ourselves, you know, and I think that's always been its function 
you know, the Greek, way back in the Greek times, where it was almost like a religious thing. Yes. One, one had to ask oneself these questions. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, certainly with Macbeth, there's a lot of really important questions. Otherwise, why, why do we still do it? Why are we still fascinated with this play? I mean, I think, and why are we still fascinated by Shakespeare? Because I think he really does tap into something and ask these questions that are kind of eternal. We know he was very popular, in his time. But I wonder whether he's gained popularity for us because it comes back to what I was saying about translating. There's an added layer of ambiguity when it's not immediately our modern language. Mm. And there's an added layer where sometimes you read stuff and like you say about poetry, it's a bit like art, you know, like two different people can see the same piece of art and take a very different thing from it. And I think when you're dealing with language that is a, very poetic anyway, and B, speaking in a language or a time that we don't necessarily speak anymore, where we don't necessarily use words in the same way anymore. It almost adds an extra layer of you take from it what you want. I sort of wonder whether he's obviously more popular now than he was then because he's got centuries of history behind him as well, but whether there's more we're getting out of him than even contemporary you know, Elizabethans were getting out of him. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, no, I think you're you're probably right, and I mean, I I think he was writing very quickly. I think he was writing for an audience. <laughs> he was he was writing stuff that was gonna please get bums yeah. on seats. I mean, there was a whole commercial aspect to this, so you know, it was very it was quite mercenary in a way. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, we're like, I what th- made him pick that word? Yeah, and he's like, first word that came to my head. Yeah, and also also it was a time where language. I mean, look. I'm not an academic, but I do know that this was a time where language was still very much in flux and it was still being... He he invented a lot of this stuff, a lot of this language. It was like sort of painting, you know, it was... They were creating things, you know, it was incredibly creative and and it was very plastic, you know, he could sculpt it how he wanted it. Yeah. You can't really do that now because we're we're sort of lumbered with grammar and tenses and like, you know, all yes, of this stuff right. that was put on later. But at the time he was just going, oh, yeah, I'll just, you know, I'll just jam along, you know, put stuff in yeah. here. I read something earlier that was about this. Which line is it? I've got it here. Words to the heat of deeds, too cold breath gives. That it's like words gives is grammatically incorrect. Totally. But yeah. give a shit. Yeah. You know, it's like... It's like, and also, how does the brain operate? You know, soliloquies are, you know, they are somebody alone processing something. Yeah. And all of his his soliloquies are great because they move things forward. You know, I think there's there's a sort of misapprehension... That oh, it's just a it's a bit where somebody comes on and they noodles. They do a bit of kind of navel gazing. Yeah, yeah. It's actually a, an active thing. It's like, I mean, it is a moment of quiet that he has, but it does move the whole thing forward and it reveals something that's going on inside the character. I don't know Macbeth well enough, but is it that he knows at the beginning of this speech he's going to kill Duncan, or is he deciding whether he's going to kill Duncan within this speech? I think he, he knows he's going to do it. There seems to be this inevitability toward it. But the thing is, the, the, so initially the, the dagger presents itself as this clean dagger that's like, it's almost like in one of those video games. It's like pointing the way. Where, yeah, you know, yeah. Where am I going? Oh, I'm going in there. It's like sort of Call of Duty or something. You know? <laughs> yeah. But it's like, it's like this, this, it's a manifestation of this clean dagger that's pointing the way to Duncan. Mm. And to me, that sort of 
it sort of seems like it is part of this kind of thread that he's going along, the, the fatal thread that he's following. Yeah, yeah. But then at some point it turns and then it's got blood all over it. It's dripping with blood. And I think that that change is, that's, to me, it almost seems like Macbeth is taking that step forward. It's showing him what this action is going to do. It is murder. Mm. To me, it seems there are two sort of functions of the, of the speech. The one is to present the audience with what the dagger is, the, what he is going to kill Duncan with. And it also describes, in a way, what is to come. Mm. What am I doing? Am I in charge of this or is it in charge of me? That, that seems to be the first thing is, is discussing. Then the second half of it sets the scene. It's, it's at a time where Shakespeare was writing, you know, there, was, there wasn't lighting and effects, there wasn't dry ice coming yeah, on, yeah. you know, like we can do now. <laughs> you know, really cool lighting and stuff. Yeah. So there's this wonderful language that he creates, this, he sets the stage. I mean, in fact, actually, it, it refers to uh, the rape of Lucrece. There's a passage in the rape of Lucrece with uh, Tarquin's ravishing strides. So can you just fill in for the listener what the rape of Lucrece is? The Rape of Lucrece is an epic poem that Shakespeare wrote. He, he did this sort of side industry of, of writing very long poems, beautiful poems that are uh, entirely separate from his dramatic work, but are incredible, actually. I mean, obviously, the sonnets are very famous. Uh, but the Rape of Lucrece is this fantastic epic poem, and 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 anyway, so he he references his own poem really with with the the section where he's talking about Tarquin's ravaging it, where Tarquin gets up in the night and he creeps, he, you know. It is again, it's this thing of a man, seem, seemingly in you know irrevocably set upon this pathway that he can't get off. Mm. And him creeping towards, but at the same time knowing what he's going to do and thinking about what he's doing, but yet he cannot stop himself. And I, I think that is very much part of this play. And it's not excusing Macbeth. It's just, it's, it's just saying that Shakespeare is trying to understand these desires, these darker desires that we have that control us. They seem to control mm. us. Mm. And and Shakespeare is saying, is it some mystic? It's like some kind of mystic thing that we can't. We're on this. We we are being drawn along by this cord that we we don't understand. And this is this is also written in the time prior to any sort of understanding of psychology. Yeah, of course. Hamlet, yeah. for example, is always seen in the prism of modern psychology, but they didn't understand what psychology was back then. I mean, they had no idea. Hamlet is a religious play, essentially. It is somebody who is a Protestant, mm -hmm. who has been schooled in Protestantism, who sees a Catholic ghost. <laughs> and what does that do to your whole sense of the world? Yeah. Well, I don't know who this one was written under James I, and I don't know what he was. Very was Protestant. He? he was yeah. very Protestant. Very, right. very yeah. But I know that there was the whole, like, this was partly for him because he was fascinated by witches. So it was sort of written <laughs> for him as a almost like a commission. He's like, I want yeah. a witch play. And it is. I mean, it still has this 
great draw because every time you do it, it's like, ooh, it's Macbeth, it's whatever, you know, very creepy. Yeah, double, double, toil and trouble. Yeah, and it, there's all of this bad luck attached to it and kind of these myths, that yeah. the legends that go around it. And it is, yeah, it's just a good ghost story, isn't it? Mm. Like, I think when you say it was the first Shakespeare play that you remember sort of seeing and loving... I do think it makes a lot of sense. It's a good, it's like a Midsummer Night's Dream, actually. Even though this is a tragedy, it's like, those are the two that I always think they're good gateway drugs to Shakespeare for kids. <laughs> like you say, it's pithy, but it's like mm-hmm. so much happens and it's almost like a fairy tale, like a dark, dark fairy tale. Totally. I always think with, particularly with Shakespeare or with Jacobean stuff, just with anything not super contemporary, there's a lot that goes over an audience's head that an actor would love relish you know moments that when you're just hearing it for the first time pass you by is there a moment in this that you think if an audience were just watching Macbeth it would go over their heads but you're like oh you've got to hear this line or you've got to realize what this line is saying I think the second half of the speech to me is beautiful and very much like you said with Midsummer Night's Dream which I I think is Mm. is actually an apt thing to compare it to because some of the poetry, you know, the poetry is ravishing. And for me, the, the second half of the speech where he talks about now o'er the one half world, nature seems dead and wicked dreams abuse the curtain sleep. Witchcraft celebrates pale Hecate's offerings and withered murder alarmed by his sentinel, the wolf whose howl his watch thus with stealthy pace with Tarquin's ravishing strides towards his design like a ghost, moves like a ghost, is such a wonderful... I mean, as I say, he's setting the scene. He's setting like, I'm doing this at night and these things happen at night. Mm. And like the referencing the wolf, the wolves, and the way that they move, the stealth, and he, it's it's also enacting what he's doing. He's creeping toward this chamber, you know, like this, this, and again calling on like a ghost. Yeah. And I love the kind of wicked dreams abuse the curtain sleep Mm. you know like this time is where our minds when we are asleep we create these terrible dreams these visions this 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 is this kind of half world where anything can happen yeah and duncan is murdered in his sleep it's like sleep is not a safe sacred place no which is deeply unsettling you know, it's like you suddenly putting that in there, like going, God, even when you're asleep, are people creeping around who could kill you? You know? It's... Yeah. Or your nightmares are going to get you. Like the whole thing is just, yeah. yeah, unsettling. Who played the Macbeth when you first saw it? Do you remember? I do. I remember vividly. I saw it. My mother uh, is an actress and she was performing at a uh, festival theatre in Canada. Uh, we moved mm. there for about four years in the end, and and she was the it was the Stratford Festival Theatre there, and they did Shakespeare, and it was a wonderful. He was British originally, but moved to the States and Canada. Actor called Brian Bedford. He was a he was a really really wonderful actor, and he did Great. a lot of plays with my mum, and my mum played Lady Macbeth in this production. Brilliant, and he played Macbeth. And I remember it, I, I just, it was, it was, he was, he was a fantastic actor. And um, even though I was a child and I didn't understand everything, I, I completely followed what was going on. I followed the kind of, the main narrative. It was made really crystal clear. Oh, totally crystal clear. And I, I, I always remember the bit with Banquo 
because they had this it was great they had this whole scene with people milling around the table there were loads of you know loads of actors all like milling around the table celebrating and there was this suddenly this moment where it went to blackout and there were just two spots and there was one on Macbeth and one on Banquo and you hadn't noticed him Mm. he was just there in the crowd and it was like bam and then suddenly he's there and you're like oh oh my god you know and it was this electric moment and You know, that's what's so great about the play. It was so simple. It was done yeah. in a very simple... There wasn't dry ice and flying witches. It was just done in this very, very simple way. Because actually, you don't need much. It's so much done in the language. Yeah. And the whole ambience is set up in this world very carefully by Shakespeare and the way that he does things and the language he uses. When I went to university, I did Macbeth as my first play. Right. And it was... um wonderfully student Macbeth. <laughs> but anyway, in that, the director's idea was that Banquo's ghost should be should look like a person whose skin had just been stripped off them. So they, he should just be covered in blood. And for those who haven't worked with fake blood, a, a typical um, recipe is golden syrup or something a bit like yeah. golden syrup mixed yeah. with some kind of red colouring. And I remember this poor guy, his name was Paddy Oldham, he had to be covered from head to toe. He was wearing a tiny little pair of Y-fronts and then covered from head to toe in this stuff. And to this day, the smell of sort of syrup makes me want to gag. Mm. Have you ever had um, a major stage fake blood part? I have. I, I, a long time ago, I played Coriolanus and there was a scene where I had to come out of... There's the sequence where he goes into Coriolis single-handed and slaughters everyone comes out right and I was literally covered and for the rest of the production for the rest of the evening I was stained a kind of it looked like I had a bad tan you know what I mean <laughs> like an orange I was slightly orange no matter how much they washed it off it, it stains like, no it stains and, and it was one night where Finbar Lynch wonderful actor oh wonderful playing, Finbar Lynch oh brilliant Tullesor, he was playing Tullesor videos and we had this huge fight yeah and one night uh, Finbar kicked me in the face accidentally during our fight. He, he, oh. There was this bit where he had to kick and I had to, I had to put my hand in front. It makes a nice noise and then I, my head flung back and he went driving right through my hand and, and whacked my nose with his foot and my nose just exploded and there was bl- real oh, blood no. coming out. But nobody knew because I was covered in blood already so they just assumed it was all part of the thing. And um, I mean, did you know? Were you aware that there was? Oh man, I knew. I'd been. I was like, I'm in trouble. I've like (laughs) really. I thought it was broken. It wasn't in the end. But my lip, my whole, my nose kind of went for the rest, and my lip go. So suddenly, Coriolano suddenly talking like this, you know. Um, not so badass yeah yeah. and that's so funny now that you've mentioned it i remember um i remember seeing an image of your coriolanus shirt i think the rsc has it in like a they must have an exhibition of old costumes of like sort of quite Uh, notorious costumes so like the richard the third my brain's gone blank who was the one who did the spider Oh, oh, Anthony Cher. The Anthony Cher, that's it. Yeah. The Anthony Cher Richard III costume is there. And yes, your bloody Coriolanus shirt is there. Still dyed pink. Still dyed pink. <laughs> that dye. <laughs> Covered yeah. in blood. I feel like I will have to get Finbar Lynch onto this at some point because in the first you series... Must. He's the most wonderful actor. Yeah, yeah I he's... talked to Mark Bonner and we were laughing about Finbar Lynch. And now you've mentioned Finbar Lynch, so we just got to give the world what it wants and hear Finbar Lynch talk as Love well. Love him. 
I've just realised that you might have cursed my podcast by doing Macbeth. I hope not. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't believe any of that. I mean, I, maybe I'll curse myself. Who knows? <laughs> You're like, God, it explains <sighs> so much. It's most unwise. Why did I do it? <laughs> I could have done anything. I could have done... I remember when, you, when I first asked you to do this, you said, oh, does it have to be something I've done? And I said, no, 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 absolutely not. If it had to be something you'd done, what's your favourite speech that you have performed? Oh. I mean, it's so boring, but I, I do think I did Hamlet a long time ago. And I do think that those speeches, I mean, really, they are they are so fantastic. Where was your Hamlet? Uh, I did it at the RSE. Tick. I did really enjoy those speeches. And I mean, the, the problem is they're like a double-edged sword because every a lot of people know them yeah that's more cursed in a way than i mean i think this one is very cursed because it's done so often i mean these plays are done to death you know what i mean and so it's very difficult i mean i personally think controversially go on that there should be a moratorium on doing these plays (laughs) like give them a rest put them to bed for like a decade and then let's have a look. On, I mean, it's a wish. I would kind of wish we could do that. Because I think they've just become... So, we've come so far away from what they, you know... And I do think that they have... They have something to say. They still have something to say to us, these plays. They are very... Completely. Like Greek plays do. Yeah. They have something essential. And they're very important to us. And they, lo- they lose it. Somehow, I think they've lost a lot of that. And I think we need to maybe just put them to bed for a while. Obviously, we can't. The RSC <laughs> functions entirely on the fact Of course, that I they, had forgotten you know, about the RSC and the Globe. And the Globe or whatever, you know, like, what would they do? It's like, <laughs> put, put it in mothballs for 10 years and then, you know. But um, I, I just wish they could. I mean, also, I think, like, there's quite a lot of plays I'd like to do. I think some Chekhov plays as well need to be put in the cupboard for a while and just... <laughs> Let, 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 let's dust them off. It, it's hard for audiences to to come to them fresh because they already have so many preconceived notions of but these things. are we worse off? Because when we're in the industry, we have so many friends in shows that we have to go and see or, no. you know, so many people, you know, things that are meant to be brilliant and, like, you're meant to go and check out this that does does your average Joe, your average normal human being who's not trying to do this crazy thing actually still get huge joy from Hamlet and Macbeth because they don't see it on an annual basis. Whereas we sometimes Mm. do end up having to watch it almost once a year because there's a new Hamlet and it's another friend, someone's playing Horatio, so we'd better go and watch it. Yeah. No, I think that is is really tough. I mean, on that note, would you read it for us? Oh, After our complaining about hearing too much Shakespeare, what I would love is to hear some more Shakespeare. Yeah. Thank now, you, Toby. Yeah. I may make a mistake, so... That's entirely all right. You know, if I do, I'll just um, carry on as if I had. Perfect. Okay. Is this a dagger which I see before me? The handle toward my hand? Come. Let me clutch thee. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. Art thou not, fatal vision, sensible to feeling as to sight? Or art thou but a dagger of the mind, 
a false creation proceeding from the heat-oppressed brain. I see thee yet, in form as palpable as this which now I draw. Thou marshalst me the way that I was going, and such an instrument I was to use. Mine eyes are made the fools of the other senses, or else worth all the rest. I see thee still, and on thy blade and dudgeon gouts of blood which was not so before. There's no such thing. It is the bloody business which informs thus to mine eyes. Now, o'er the one half-world, nature seems dead, and wicked dreams abuse the curtained sleep. Witchcraft celebrates pale Hecate's offerings, and withered murder alarmed by his sentinel, the wolf, whose howls his watch. Thus, with his stealthy pace, with Tarquin's ravishing strides, towards his design moves like a ghost. Thou, sure and firm, said Earth, hear not my steps, which way they walk, for fear thy very stones prate of my whereabout, and take the present horror from the time which now suits with it. Whilst I threat, he lives. Words to the heat of deeds too cold breath gives. I go, and it is done. The bell invites me. Hear it not, Duncan, for it is a knell that summons thee to heaven or to hell. Fabulous. It's, I think what people don't appreciate sometimes as well is how lovely it is to say those words. Yes, yeah. I mean, it is such beautiful language. But, I mean, it also has this sort of... It, it's interesting that the metre and everything does have this inevitable kind of... It, it feels like it's part of the kind of, like, he's being drawn. It, it, he's not in control of his destiny. He is being drawn on. And even though he knows what he's doing, he can't stop himself from doing it. it yeah. Has this... In Jean Pemont, is not just a GCSE English Lit essay point. Like, it is true. It makes an actor feel like there's no stopping. Like, yeah. you constantly carry into the next line and into the next line. And it is this... Mo- it is a moment of stillness. It is a moment... I mean, I, mean, I think it's this kind of moment of, like, it's night time. And this is when bad shit happens. And I, I'm part of this whole thing. I am part of this. And I am, I know what's going on. And the bell, when it rings, I, that thing of like going, it invites me, it calls yeah, me. Yeah, what a phrase. Yeah, it invites me. I, and then that, that thing of like, I cannot stop what is going on. Yeah, thrill. Thank you so much, Toby. You're more than welcome. You're more than welcome. Thank you for asking Hear Me Out is a Lucy Eaton Productions podcast. Music composed by Tristan Kay and artwork by Rebecca Bright. Our heartfelt thanks to the estates and license holders that allow us to read our guests' speech choices. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please, please subscribe, rate and review. You can follow us on social media at Pod Hear Me Out and enjoy visual clips of the interviews on our YouTube channel. Finally, if you would like to support Hear Me Out, go ahead and click the Patreon link at the bottom of the episode bios.